As those of you who have been around a while know, we're in the Straits of Tammuz right now. Straits of Tammuz is a period of three weeks. And it starts on the 17th of Tammuz and goes to the 9th of Av. It's a period of fasting. It's a period of great sorrow. Historically, the golden calf was worshipped at the 17th of Tammuz, and then the sin of the spies was on the 9th of Av. So every year thereafter, it's been a time of great danger and peril for Israel. So, for example, the temple was destroyed twice on the 9th of Av. First time by Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C., and the second time by the Romans in 70 A.D. When Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, he broke the walls on the 17th of Tammuz and destroyed the city on the 9th of Av. Things have happened throughout history during this period. So it's an important period, and it's a period of great peril for Israel. One of the things that I said last time I was speaking to you is that it's my opinion that we are in the last quarter of the sixth millennium. For those of you who are into prophecy, I'm going to talk about prophecy in the end times in the context of the Straits of Tammuz. And some themes that I've been talking about the last several weeks, especially in Midrash and on Tuesday night. So those of you who have been in Midrash and Tuesday night will be familiar with these themes. Those of you who haven't, this will be kind of new to you. The first thing we've been talking about is zealotry. You remember last time we had the reading about Phineas, and we didn't read the passage on Elijah, but normally that's the Haftorah reading at the same time. And we talked about God's attitude toward a zealot. And in both cases, God essentially says to the zealot, thank you for your service, don't ever do that again. In the case of Phineas, he does it by giving Phineas a covenant of peace, which means cool it, be at peace. In the case of Elijah, he basically says, thank you for your service, your services are no longer required, go anoint Elisha in your place. So he doesn't condemn the act of zealotry per se, but he says, this is not a lifestyle. I don't want you doing this routinely. Our attitude towards zealotry is very different. We kind of like zealotry. We sort of all get excited about getting righteously indignant and pulling out our sword and going and slaying a bunch of heathens. and We like that. God, as I say, understands it under certain circumstances, but it's not intended to be something that's done routine. Now, the other thing that I've been talking about for the last several weeks, again in Midrash and in uh, Tuesday night, and I got this from Rabbi Sachs, very, very insightful, I think. And what he says, there are three voices in Scripture. The first voice is the voice of the priest. And what the priest talks about is clean and unclean, holy and common, and about the Torah. So when the priest is speaking, those are the subjects he talks about. The second voice is the voice of the king. And the voice of the king is human wisdom. So the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, so forth, uh, those are the voice of the king. And Yeshua, when he speaks, he's, he uses basically all three voices, but there's sometimes when he speaks of human wisdom, there's sometimes when he speaks, let's say, of the Lord, and there's sometimes when he speaks prophetically. 
But the voice of the king, as I say, is, is human wisdom, the wisdom of a godly person who has learned the way of the world and is passing that wisdom on. And then the final voice is the voice of the prophet. And the prophet can come from anybody. Prophets are typically not priests, and they're typically not kings. And the voice of the prophet is diagnostic, which is to say God sends a prophet when Israel is running off the rails. Prophet doesn't come through your town to pat you on the head and say, wow, you guys are really doing a great job. That doesn't happen. It's diagnostic. What he's saying is, you guys are running off the rails, and I am coming to tell you what the problem is. It's situational. He speaks the truth, but he speaks the truth into a situation. So one of the things that people do all the time is they will take the voice of a prophet and they will apply it to the wrong situation. Because it's scripture, right? I mean, it's in the scripture. And yes, it is, but it's in the scripture as a prescription for a specific problem in a specific situation. And again, my favorite one that I use all the time, and a lot of you heard this before, uh, Isaiah says, all your righteousness is like filthy rags, dirty diapers and so forth. People will just say that. Well, that's situational. Israel has fallen into violence and idolatry, and they are still performing the form of religion, and they are acting righteous even though they are not righteous, and so God sends a prophet and says, all this righteousness you guys are displaying smells to me like dirty diapers. It is not the case that God doesn't care about your righteousness. It's situational. So, the typical prophetic book has got four parts. Part one is a diagnosis. This is what you're doing wrong. This is what has caused me to send you a prophet. The second one is the remedy. Do this, and you'll get back on track. Things will go well. The third part is consequences. If you do not do this, this is what's going to happen. And then the fourth part is hope. I still love you, and if you don't listen to my words and you don't do my remedy, this is what's going to happen in consequences, but understand, I still love you, and I'm going to bring you back. That's a prophetic book in a nutshell. With the exception of Jonah, I think all of them are that way. Now, one of the things that happens when the world comes into the church is pagan mindset collides with a Hebrew mindset. It is not the case that when you come into the church and get saved and so forth, you suddenly become very different. As I'm fond of saying, if you were fat, bald, and stupid before you got saved, you're going to be fat, bald, and stupid after you get saved. You just are. And it's going to take a while of discipleship and so forth to work you to where you want to be. That's just the way people are. So you have all these pagans come in, and pagans, by the way, have seers, fortune tellers, witches, necromancers, all those kind of folks that deal with the supernatural. And the pagans' understanding of the supernatural is different than God's people's understanding of the supernatural. So what a pagan seer does is he makes predictions. What a prophet of God does is he issues prophecy. Now, prophecy and prediction are not the same thing. You can tell because they're spelled differently. Two different words. They mean two different things. 
and in most of the body of Christ we get that confused and we think that a prophecy is a prediction it's not for a prediction to succeed it comes to pass so if I were to predict that there's going to be rain this afternoon and if it rains I have made a successful prediction if a prophet says unless you do this this will happen if that consequence comes to pass the prophecy has failed because the purpose of a prophecy is to get people to correct make a correction you've messed up correct do this change your course repent anybody ever heard those words all those words what Yeshua says and if you don't follow the words of the prophet and you continue on your way and the consequences then come to pass the prophecy has failed the prophet has not succeeded in turning you from your path and back onto the path of God because that's why he was sent the only prophecy that I know of that hasn't failed is the one to Nineveh by Jonah the Gentiles said whoa 40 days Nineveh's going to be destroyed well if we repent and put on sackcloth and ashes and so forth maybe God will change his mind and in fact God does relent and Nineveh is spared for a hundred years Israel never gets it so what happens is every time Israel gets a prophet sent to them they don't change they don't do what's supposed to happen so the consequences take effect so in our Gentile pagan minds we say well a prophecy is a prediction because the prophet said it and it came to pass now the other thing to understand about prophets is they are really not interested in the power of God even though they often have control over it what they're really interested in is the righteousness of God so what a prophet is trying to do is tell you that righteousness prevails which is contrary to what the world will tell you the world will tell you that power prevails God will say no righteousness prevails and that's where we get mixed up with the zealot because the zealot has access to the power of God and the zealot gets right up to here in righteous anger and suddenly just calls down fire or sticks somebody with a spear or something like that so the zealot has access to the power of God but in using the power of God he sends us the wrong message which is that it's the power of God that's important here when really what's important is the righteousness of God so let's look at Revelation Revelation follows the same four steps in the beginning chapter 1 you have a greeting Revelation 1 9 I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Yeshua was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God in the testimony of Yeshua I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea so that's who the letter is to chapters 2 and 3 are the diagnosis remember I said a prophet comes and he diagnoses what the problems are so chapters 2 and 3 are the diagnosis of Yeshua of what's going on with the church 
And I will suggest that those seven churches, in fact, encapsulate all of Christianity. So what you have is a diagnosis. And within those seven letters to the seven churches, each one of them is offered a remedy. So in the case of Ephesus, for example, Ephesus is really, really, really good at doctrine and understanding the word, but they've lost their first love. And so what Yeshua says is repent and return to your first love. So you have diagnosis and you have remedy. Then chapters 4 through 20 are consequences. In other words, if the church doesn't apply the remedy that Yeshua gave, then chapters 4 through 20 kick in. And you got the earthquakes, and you've got the earth opening up, and you got fire falling from heaven, and you got plagues, and you got all that stuff. Then chapters 21 and 22 are hope. Chapters 21 and 22 says after all that stuff happens, then we're going to have a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to dwell with God and so forth. So, so understand, Revelation has exactly the same pattern as every other book of prophecy. Now, going back, when do the consequences kick in? When the people of God do not apply the remedy to the malady that God has laid out by the prophet. Now, everybody in the body of Christ spends a whole lot of time going around looking under bushes and looking at books and stuff. Who's the Antichrist? Where's the beast? Who is that? And what I'm suggesting to you is that will depend on what the church does. Because who's the message to in Revelation? To the church. And if the church fails in what it's supposed to do, then the consequences are going to kick in. And at that point, whenever that is, the Antichrist will be revealed and all that stuff will happen. If we don't apply the remedy for the problem that God has diagnosed. And as I said, in the Old Testament prophets, Israel never does apply the remedy. So the stuff kicks in. And we, our Gentile minds, say, well, then it's a prediction, not a prophecy. Prediction and prophecy are two different words, remember? Now, my opinion, do this whatever you like. We are in the fourth quarter of the sixth millennium. And as I understand scripture, the seventh millennium will be when Yeshua reigns on earth for a thousand years. Given the track record of the people of God in applying the remedies that God prescribes, I have no doubt in my military mind that at some point the stuff in Revelation is going to kick in just because of our track record. And when I say the people of God, I'm talking about Israel and I'm talking about Christianity. As I say, we're no better than our ancestors. But we have an opportunity that Revelation chapters 4 through 20 could never happen. Now, as I say, knowing human beings, I'm not betting that way, you understand? But he gives us remedies. He tells us what he wants us to do. He tells us what our problems are. And he goes to the church in sometime after 70 AD, right? And he says, these are your problems. So this is immediately after the crucifixion and resurrection. He's looking at his people and he's saying, straighten up. Knock this stuff off. 
And I will suggest to you that every problem that is laid out in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is present in the church today. Everyone. You've got some of us that are lukewarm. You've got some of us that really want to be zealots and we've lost our love for each other. But boy, we got the old zealot spear in our hand. We've got some of us that have married to the world. All of these problems that you see in Revelation 2 and 3 are present today. Not every problem in every body. Every body doesn't have all the problems. But every body has some of the problems. And so what I'm suggesting that we need to do is we need to figure out which church or combinations of churches in Revelation we are. And we need to look at the remedies prescribed for that church and we need to start implementing them. That's our job. And he's given us a diagnosis. He's given us a remedy. He's told us what the consequences are going to be. And by the way, I am not a pre-trib rapture guy. I am not of the opinion that God is going to suck his church into the overhead and we're all going to watch while Satan and the Jews duke it out. I don't think that's going to happen because it hasn't ever happened before. Now, I was talking to Ken the other day, talking about the other churches in the building. And Ken said something that was really interesting. I was in here on a Sunday for some reason various flavors of Baptist, but wall-to-wall Baptist. And I said hi to somebody, and I sort of got this cold look. And, and you had a phrase, I don't talk to sinners. Not, not you personally. And that struck me. But the idea that I got this cold look because they knew that I was a Messianic and I wasn't a Baptist, and we don't talk to sinners. Well, I will suggest to you that that's the problem that the body of Christ has right now, is we're fractured. The Baptists are allies. They are the people of God, just like we are. And if we look at each other and say, well, you're clearly under that old law and I ain't going to talk to you, what's going to happen is we are going to continue to fragment into seven churches, each of which has got problems. And we're never going to come together. And so what's going to happen is this set of consequences that is in Revelation is going to kick off. And we're going to live the whole thing, much less watch it. So, two things. Understand that your brothers in Christ, Catholics, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Baptists, Evangelicals, we're all on the same team. And we've got to work together. God doesn't hold the pagans in the world responsible. He holds us responsible. And the consequences kick in when he gives up on the people of God being able to correct the situation. So what we don't want to do is have him give up on our ability to try and correct the situation. You need to engage. You need to engage with the culture. You need to engage politically. You need to engage with your other church Brethren, whether they're wearing seat seats or not, you've got to engage. Because when the church doesn't engage and the place literally goes to hell, then God lights off the remedy. Now, that didn't work. We're going to have to remedy this situation. And he goes in and you're up to your hips and Babylonians or somebody. The things in Revelation are not written in stone, they're the consequences. 
And if we apply the remedy, the consequences get pushed off. Now, as I say, we are human beings, and my faith in our ability long-term to apply the remedy is not very high, so it's probably going to happen. But the attitude of, it's going to happen, it's written in stone, bring it on, that's the voice of the zealot. And remember, we started off talking about the zealot. And God says to the zealot, thank you for your service, don't ever do that again. So what I'm saying to you is if your attitude is the attitude of the zealot, oh, bring it on, I want to see the fire from heaven toasting all those sinners. If that's your attitude, you are a zealot. What do you suppose destroyed Jerusalem the second time under the Romans? There was a political party in Israel called the zealots. And you know what the zealots did? The zealot says, we're going to get rid of these Romans and we're not going to stand behind the walls. And what they did is they went and burned all of the supplies in Jerusalem so that the people of Jerusalem would not be able to stand behind the walls in safety for any length of time. And what happened is the Romans destroyed them. The zealots did that. So this attitude that you'll find in a lot of our brothers and sisters in Messiah of bring it on. This place is right up to here. God, we want to see your wrath. That's the voice of the zealot. And that's not the voice that you want to have long term. Zealotry is situational. Frog stuck two people. Toasted 400 prophets of Baal. And then it was done. So don't be praying for the events of Revelation to light off. Be out there working to prevent them. Be out there trying to change the situation so the remedy is not necessary.